Hello, Eternal City Church. Um, glad to see all of you here tonight, all of you guys online. Um, it's great to be here, great to worship together. Um, so if you're here tonight and you're online and this is your first time here, welcome. We're excited you're here. Uh, maybe after the service, if you're here in person, you'll get a gift afterwards. We can connect uh, online. We ask that you just continue to come back. Uh, if you're here and you're sort of questioning sort of why you're here, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you that you're not here by accident. Um, you're here for a purpose. You're here for a reason. And just encourage you to continue to come back. Um, maybe through coming back, we'll get to hear your story eventually. You'll get to hear our story. Uh, we can connect on that. But I just want to encourage you guys to continue to come back, okay? Um, the first scripture we open with tonight talks about God's covenant relationship with the Israelites. Last night, I just want to give a little shout out to the marriage course, which is about the covenant of marriage. Um, last night, we had, again, like 11 couples here. It's a beautiful night um, to celebrate marriage, to work through just stuff last night, um, all those who supported. And I ask you to keep that group up in prayer, um, keep those who are supporting in prayer, and especially marriage in prayer as a whole. So thank you for that. Um, before we get started, just to lay out the room a little bit, um, men's room to my right, women's room to the left up the steps, um, drinks in the front, uh, drinks in the back, coffee and tea. Um, if, you got, if you haven't gotten one of these GCC guides, please... We'll get you one, but they're really good. They sort of go, they go with the sermon. Um, they're for the midweek groups, but they're also just great. If you're not in a midweek group, they're just a great follow-up to the sermon. So please try to connect and get one of those um, before we go. In the back is the bookstore, which will be open after service. Um, please stop there. Um, books are great. Books are priced well. Good, strong theological books, so please stop back at the bookstore. Uh, lastly... At Eternal City Church, we are here to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in his image. Uh, we do this by making disciple, making disciples, unifying all people, training and challenging men to lead sacrificially, equipping women for ministry, and planting church, planting churches. And I will turn it over now to Pastor Chris. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, everybody. Good to see you all this evening. And I am excited to get our worship gathering started. But before we do so, we have a few quick announcements. Uh, the first one is that, could we advance the slide one, my friend? Prayer. So every Sunday from 4 to 4.45, we pray as a church. And we pray for the ministries of Eternal City Church. We pray for the neighborhood uh, the surrounding neighborhoods, five miles out, if you will, from uh, Wilkinsburg. And we are praying that God would move in these neighbors, neighborhoods, thank you, my friend, to save and cause revival. The elders pray this every single time we meet uh, once a month. We pray that God would, would break forth in Wilkinsburg and the surrounding communities, and he would save and we would see a noticeable movement of God in and around Wilkinsburg specifically, because this is where we're centered, but then around Wilkinsburg. We want to see that happen, and we know that only God can make that happen ultimately. And so we pray for that, but also there's a lot of ministries that happen at Eternal City Church, and the only way anything gets done for the long haul and for final eternal transformation is by God's doing. Okay? Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the 
the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. And we believe that. And so we, we need to pray if we're going to see God move among us through our ministries. And so we work, but it has to be God working through us, right? And so, so we pray. And so if you would like to pray with us, come at 4 o'clock. Uh, the, the prayer room is just to the left of the nursery on the second floor. And uh, we would love to have you, Tim and Diana Hunsberger, lead the time of prayer. There's Tim there with his hand up. If you're curious or have questions, go see Tim. Uh, but really, this is an important thing. And we do pray throughout our worship gatherings, but there's prayer happening behind the scenes all the time. And if anything good and eternal happens, it's because God has moved in response to our prayers. Okay, next. Next is, for some reason I'm not working there, Jonathan, there we go. Today is a family Sunday, which just means that all the kids stay in the room tonight. And so my aim is to, to shorten the sermon tonight, maybe like an hour and a half instead of two hours. I'm kidding. It, it will be shorter, I promise, I promise you. But kids, good news, we have all kinds of coloring materials on the back table for you. And uh, coloring, new coloring sheets tonight, coloring supplies, clipboards, all that. And so we'll remind you just before we start the, the sermon tonight. But all the kids stay in. The nursery is open uh, for those of you who have nursery age kids, zero to four, but it's not staffed. But if you need to, you could take those kids up there and hang out with them. The, the service is streaming live there in the nursery. And so it's open but not staffed. Okay, and then lastly, what we have is uh, some exciting news. Uh, gospel Center communities are what we do throughout the week. We meet in homes. Uh, this would be a massive group. The, the groups are not this big. This is just a representative of some of the people in the groups, okay? Uh, some of, yes, it is, actually, yes. You identified the picture. But most everybody in this picture are in a group, okay? And so scattered throughout Pittsburgh are various people in this picture, and what we want to say to you is, if you're not in a group yet, we would love for you to get into a gospel-centered community. Okay, the mission of the gospel-centered communities is to help make the gospel central to all of life. And we do this by unpacking the sermon each week. In fact, uh, you may have already received the gospel-centered community discussion guide that unpacks the sermon in more details, almost like a study Bible would or a, or a, a brief commentary. And it gives you questions at the bottom to open up discussion in your gospel-centered communities, okay? Application questions, if you will. And so if you're not in a group, we would love to get you in a group. And here's the good news. Uh, we have so many people now in groups that we are multiplying a group. So we're starting a fifth group, uh, and, and the leaders are identified. They have said yes and amen. And, friends, here's good news. We are going to be shuffling and moving our groups a bit in location, meaning geography. And so we want to shift people according to where they live so that it's easier for you to get to your groups and maybe for you to do more neighborhood-oriented things because you're more close in proximity. Uh, at this point, people are scattered all over the place throughout the city. There are some who are located geographically close to each other, but our aim as elders is now to to get a little bit more geographically central as far as the gospel-centered communities go. And so now, if, now would be the time. If you're not in one, now that we're shuffling them a bit, uh, now would be the time to come see me, come see Pastor Pete, Pastor Eddie, or Pastor Justin, and say, hey, I would like to get into a group. Can you please recommend one for me? 
And we would love to get you in a gospel-centered community group, not only for you to, to get to know the church more personally, but for you to be personally edified throughout the week. Uh, the church can't be more than just you know, an hour and a half on Sundays. We, we have to be together more often, bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ, as Galatians 6, 1 says, uh, 1 through 4, rather. And we need to uh, be unpacking the scriptures communally. When, we're, when we have a sermon, it's more of a, a one person speaking to all of you. Where gospel-centered communities, it's uh, community discussion, community unpacking the scriptures. Uh, and, and normally there will be two or three or even more leaders in the group who, who know the Bible well and can help guide the discussion in a helpful way. So it's not just, yeah, whatever you think is probably right. Okay, we, we do, there is a right way to interpret the text, and that's why we have good leaders leading the groups. All right, and so please, I urge you, I highly encourage you, I would even strongly exhort you, if you're not in a group and you would call Eternal City Church your home, please come see us, okay? It's very important that you would get into a group. And even if you can't make every single week, uh, you could make maybe twice a month or three times a month, or we want to get you in a group so that you can get more connected with the church. All right, at this time, we are going to read the scriptures. And so if you could stand, this is the beginning of our worship service officially after announcements and when we read the scriptures. After the scriptures are read communally, the worship team's going to come up and they will begin to lead us in song. Thanks, Gina. Okay. Hi, church. All right, let's read together Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 and Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. family. How's everybody doing? All right. Yeah. This last Sunday of uh, February. Was anybody here born on a leap year? No. Okay. I'm just curious. I've always wondered. I don't know anybody that was born on a leap year, but it's not like birthdays. That would be messed up. <laughs> right. 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 Sin that is 
Chris, and help us to continue to worship you by listening to your word and learning. Move your spirit within us, God, and just uh, let us leave better than we came, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. And as I mentioned earlier in the announcements, today is uh, Family Sunday, and that means that all the kids stay here in the room. And so kids, if you'd like, the back table to my right has all kinds of coloring pages on there. And there are all kinds of different coloring utensils, colored pencils, markers, 
clipboards, and so feel free to get up and get those now. And parents, this is your call, but it will not bother me if the kids get up during the message and go and refill their coloring pages, but that, that is up to you. That's at your discretion, but it will not bother me. Uh, often people say to me when I'm preaching, didn't you hear this or that or the other? Or didn't you see this movement? And I'm like, I am, I'm in tunnel vision. I can't see or hear or know anything that's happening but this. And so I'm sure if someone yelled fire and started pointing to a blaze, I would snap out of it. But other than that, you're not going to bother me, kids. All right, so we are continuing through the book of Exodus. I see some new faces here. And so uh, for those of you who are new to Eternal City Church or you're visiting tonight, uh, we are going currently through the book of Exodus, verse by verse by verse. For now, we haven't skipped any verses. Once we get into the latter chapters of Exodus, we might skip a few. Uh, but for now, we're not skipping any verses, okay? And we are now in chapter 4, 18, starting in 18, and we're going to travel all the way through the end of chapter 4. And at this point in the story, uh, Moses, who is the main character uh, outside of God and Pharaoh, uh, Moses has already sought to liberate the people uh, that are his own, the Jewish people. He failed at that and fled into the wilderness, into Midian. Uh, where he was uh, kind of adopted into the family of Jethro, the priest of Midian. Um, Jethro gives Moses one of his daughters, Zipporah. They have two children, and Moses then is out tending Jethro's sheep in the wilderness, and uh, behold, Moses sees this bush, and it's on fire, and yet the leaves and the wood of the bush are not being consumed. And so Moses says, this is, this is a strange thing. I'm going to go and see this thing. And he does, and, and God speaks from the bush. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am, or I am that I am. Yahweh. And he, he discloses his name to Moses. And Moses is going to then disclose his name to his people. And God from the bush calls Moses to go and liberate his people, who are roughly a million people at this point. Uh, if you include the women and the children, there's roughly a, a million plus people. And Moses is supposed to lead them out of Egypt uh, to worship God. And so where we break in now is uh, Moses has already been confronted by God several times. All his excuses have been squashed. That was last week's message. And so now Moses is finally willing to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so now you're all caught up, all right? And so now we're going to break in to chapter 4, verse 18, and we'll begin to unpack it verse by verse by verse. All right, so let's start with verse 18 through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. And so Moses then goes to his father-in-law, whom he has a good relationship with. 
He is respectful and, and he honors his father, even though that command is not yet given to honor your father and mother. This is his father-in-law. And, and he doesn't exactly tell Jethro all that happened yet. That's coming later in Exodus. And so it seems uh, either we're given a very limited version of the conversation or Moses purposefully held back some information from Jethro. But nonetheless, he was peaceful with him, and you can tell that there's a good relationship between Moses and Jethro, for he says, go in peace. And so Moses takes his wife and he takes his two sons, and they begin to travel to Egypt. Now, in verse 19... God says to Moses, all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, when Moses had fled Egypt 40 years earlier, not only did the Pharaoh want to kill Moses for killing an Egyptian and for, you know, somehow plotting to overthrow and to release the people, uh, uh, the Jewish people from from Egyptian captivity, uh, no doubt Pharaoh had sent out, if you will, headhunters to find Moses and to kill him, assassins, if you will, no doubt. And so Moses was fearful, and God speaks to this fear in Moses, and he says, listen, all the people who were trying to kill you are now dead, so don't worry about them. And so what this means is a new Pharaoh has taken the throne. The Pharaoh who was uh, Moses' adopted father, you remember the daughter of Pharaoh, took Moses in as her own, and so he had, uh, if you will, a grandfather as the Pharaoh. Uh, that man is dead, and now a new Pharaoh arises. And if you're familiar with the animated story, who is it? Who's the Pharaoh? Isn't it his brother? Right? Some, some weird… Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't, we don't know if that was his brother who took the throne. Uh, that's a Disney, you know, conjecture there. But maybe. We don't know. But there's a new Pharaoh, and this Pharaoh is not now seeking to take Moses' life. And, and apparently, the, the other ones who are seeking Moses' life are also dead. Now, this is interesting because this is the first time in Exodus we learn that Moses has more than one child. You remember earlier in Exodus, we learned of Gershom, but we didn't know there was other children. And so now we find out, huh, there are more than one child. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons, plural, and had them ride on a donkey. Now, later in Exodus, in chapter 18, we find out the name of this other son. Jephro appears again. The priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and, the, and for Israel, his people. Now, this is after the parting of the Red Sea, after the plagues. This is, they're now in the wilderness, free from uh, Egyptian captivity. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner. This is the, the note in the ESV. Sometimes I leave these in because I find them helpful. Gershom sounds like the Hebrew for sojourner. And notice the text says, for he said, quote, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer. Eliezer means my God is help. My God is help. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped 
at the mountain of God. And so we find out not only is there Gershom, but now there's Eleazar, okay? And so Moses takes his two sons and his wife, and they begin this trek to Egypt from Midian. And so we pick up the story in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, what's happening here is it seems, this is the case, that as Moses leaves, God meets him again on the way. And he reiterates, I want you to go and I want you to do this. But then he unpacks some more detail. And he says he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go. And that's kind of a contradiction if you think about it. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, let my people go. But just so you know, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't do that. So he won't do that. So that he will not let the people go. Then, as a result of that, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now this is interesting. Now God is claiming the people who came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his own son, which means God is a father, right? If, if God has a son, this is implying the fatherhood of God. Israel is my firstborn son. Now, if you know anything about biblical Old Testament firstbornness, that implies double inheritance. It, in, it implies uh, primary in the family line. And so here, not only is Israel a son, but he's the firstborn son, meaning the, the one of most importance, the one who is honored. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And then God says, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Firstborn son for a firstborn son. Now, now, this may seem a bit harsh. I understand that, okay? And often we have this, I think, wrong view of the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. And what we often say is, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was harsh and he was angry and he was wrathful and he was violent and he was a killer. And yet the God of the New Testament is gracious and loving and compassionate and merciful and forgiving. And yet, here's what we forget. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we get in the Old Testament is the same God that we get in the New Testament. What we have in the New Testament is more of a clear picture of who this Yahweh, who this I am is. That's the difference. And here, what we're seeing is God's authority, rulership, sovereignty, and His justice. Let's not forget that earlier in Exodus, the Pharaoh commanded all the people to throw all the male children into the Nile River and kill them. Now, if God just said, ah, oh, you know, that's not a big deal, 
kill a whole generation of baby boys? Not that. No, God, if He is good, He should punish that. Mass genocide and murder, right? And so here's God not responding right away. He could click His fingers and all those Egyptians fall dead instantly. He could do that. But instead, He's going to come later and give a chance for repentance. In fact, you'll see this as the plagues move forward. Every time a plague is, is threatened, there's an opportunity to repent. And then when there's no repentance, there's another plague, and it gets a little harsher. And then there's an opportunity to repent. And then when there's no repentance, and time and time again, God shows mercy in that He gives opportunities to repent, but it doesn't happen. And so even here, this is, this is a foreshadowing of what God is going to do. But let us never say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament, okay? The God of the New Testament of grace, love, mercy, kindness, forgiveness is this same God in the Old Testament threatening Pharaoh here saying, if you do not let my son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. Okay? It is the same God. We cannot, friends, listen to me, we cannot take the parts of God we like and say, that's my God, and then take the parts of God we don't like that are revealed clearly in His Word and say, I can't worship a God like that. Friends, you have set up an idol to worship if you don't take God as He reveals Himself fully. Let me say that again. We worship the God who reveals Himself in the Word fully, or we set up a truncated version of the God we would like to worship. And friends, we need to take God as He reveals Himself, whether it makes us feel good inside or not. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and so, my encouragement here is let, let's try to unpack this a bit, okay? This is where I want to spend a little bit of time, and then there's one more section where I want to spend a little bit of time, and so let's camp here for just a minute, okay? This hardening concept comes out over and over again in the book of Exodus, and it appears in the New Testament as well. And so, what God is going to do is He is going to put His miracles on display. You look there at verse 21. Do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And so far, what miracles has he put in his power? You remember, he's to throw the staff down, and it's to become a snake. He's to put his hand in his cloak, and then it comes out leprous and diseased. And then he puts it back in his cloak, and it comes out whole and healed. And then if they don't believe and listen at that point, there is to be water taken from the Nile, poured on the ground, and as it pours out, it will become blood. Hey, those are the signs. And so, Moses, you do these, and then later I will show you more that I will do if these signs are not enough. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, after the hardness of heart comes, Israel's my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. All right. In God doing these miracles, it is not Moses 
Okay, I want, I want you to think through this, okay? We often think of Moses somehow as this super guru, demigod-ish man, yet it's not Moses doing the miracles, is it, ultimately? Moses is a man with a nature like ours. So what that means is if you were on that mountain tending the sheep of Jethro and you saw the burning bush and then God said to you, I want you to go, until Pharaoh let my people go, God could have done the same thing through you if he wanted to. It's not about Moses. It's about God. And just as Pete mentioned last week, you know, Moses had this staff. The staff wasn't a magical staff. It wasn't a Harry Potter wand, you know. It was God using the staff, just like it's God using Moses here as an instrument. But the point here is God. Let's, let's get it right. The point here is God. And so the miracles only come through Moses. And let's not forget last week, Moses was quite reluctant. Moses wasn't like, yes, I've been waiting for this my whole life. <laughs> he was like, no, please. Excuse, 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 excuse. Send someone else. And then God gets mad. And he's like, oh, no, it's you, my man. And, and so Moses finally complies. And, and here we're, we're seeing it play out. And so, let me ask you a question. Do you think God has the power and capacity and ability to move through you today? Maybe not in the same way. You know, God was doing miraculous things here in Exodus, and maybe He doesn't want to do the same exact things through you. You know, I, we, we have walking sticks. You know, we, we, some have carve them, some buy them from stores. Most likely, he's not going to give you the stick that turns into a, a poisonous viper, and then you can throw it down and pick it up and, and be able to do magic shows. That's not what God's doing right now. But back then, this is what he was doing. But is God the same God yesterday, today, and forever? Yes, he is. So, can God work through you in powerful ways to advance his kingdom and to accomplish his purposes? Shake your head. He can. He can use me. He can use me. And so, let us not imagine Moses as this hero-like figure because he's not. He was reluctant. He was making excuses. And then finally, he said, God, I don't want to do this. Send someone else. And God's like, you're the man. You're going. Stop making excuses. Okay? And so, I just want to encourage you. We've hit on this a lot. This is not the first time you've heard this, but I want to encourage you again. If God is moving on you to do something to expand his kingdom, trust in him and not yourself. What we tend to do is we look at ourselves and we say, I can't. Amen. But God can. Moses does not have this ability to make his skin leprous and then heal it when he wants. It's God doing that through Moses and to Moses. It's not about Moses and the staff. It's about God using Moses and using the staff. And friends, he can use you and will use you if you give yourself over to him in faith. Do you believe that? You should believe that. And I would encourage you, if God is moving on you, have other people pray for you that you might have a discerning mind to understand what the call is if you have the capacity and if you have the opportunity, okay? Uh, real quick, I think Tim Keller has one of the simplest and best ways to discern a call from God. 
He would say, if you feel like God is calling you to something or to do something or to, to change direction, he says, number one, you have to have the affinity or, or the desire. Okay? Do you have the desire? Okay? Now, Moses didn't, but the heart's been changed now because he's going. Right? He went to Jephro, let me do this, yes. Secondly, do you have the ability? Okay? Do you have the ability? Now, Moses didn't have the ability, but God gave him the ability, and he took away his excuses. Who, get, who made man's mouth? Who makes man mute? Who makes man able to speak? Okay, God. Thirdly, do, does the community around you confirm that this is something God might be calling you to do? Affinity, ability, community. Affinity, ability, community. And so God calls Moses physically, verbally, and says, you go and do this. All right, let's unpack for a moment this reality, that God is not wrong in saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, and if you don't, I will take your firstborn son. Okay, how can, how can God say that? and be just in what he said. Well, I gave you one reason already, okay? The Egyptians had already wiped out a generation of male boys by throwing them in the Nile River, okay? And so justice would demand a response to that, a punishment, okay? But secondly, there's a theological principle that if God creates and sustains, then he is the owner of it, Okay? Just like if you are an artist and you paint a painting, you bought the canvas, you, know, you stretched it out, it's your paint, it was your idea, you painted it, who does that painting belong to? You. Okay? And if you want to hide it in the closet so no one can ever see it, that's on you, it's up to you. Right? If you want to sell it or try to sell it, you can do that. If you want to shoot holes through it with your, with your gun for target practice, it's yours. Do what you will with it. In the same way, friends, what is God's? Psalm 24, 1-2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, that sounds King James-ish, King Jimmy-ish, but the NIV and the CSB would say it like this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything on the earth belongs to God. Or all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell therein. So you have everything that's not alive and that's not people, that's not image bearers, but then secondly, image bearers, all those who dwell therein. And then verse 2 grounds it in creation. For he has founded it, what? The earth and everything in it, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This talks about Genesis 1, where God brought the dry land up out of the seas, and he created an environment for man and animals and plants to live in. And so because God created it, he owns it. But not only does he create it, later we find out in Acts 17 that he also sustains it. It's by him that we live and move and have our being. Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, God is actively sustaining this very moment 
in time and space. All the molecules in your body being held together, all the chemical reactions in your brain happening right now, that you can comprehend what I'm saying, God is the one behind all of that. He's the primary cause of all things. He is the author of life and death, and so if He's given you another day, it's a gift from Him. I don't know if you think about it, but we gladly sing the song in this church. Uh, Many times we've sung it. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Okay, and often, you know, the, the, the verse gets a little rowdier and rowdier, and we lift our hands, but yet think about what that's saying. Every breath I take is yours. And if you're one of the people who raise your hands, you're saying yes and amen. It's not mine. You realize that? So sometimes we sing these songs and we don't actually think about what we're singing. What we're saying is my breath is not mine, it's a gift. Right? And we get caught up in the song and in the music and we're like, God's like, you know what that means, right? It's my breath, not yours. That heart beating inside your chest that you don't ever think about, who's keeping it beating? I am. You say, I have a pacemaker. Well, he's keeping that beating too. (laughs) All right, one more. Daniel 2, 20 to 21. I love this. This is after uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, has taken the Jewish people captive, and, and he's taken the best and the brightest to Babylon. And Daniel is one of the company of the wise men or the magicians, okay? And Pharaoh has this dream from God, and he calls all the wise men and all the interpreters, and he says, I want you to interpret the dream for me. And they say, tell us the dream. And he says, no, you tell me what the dream was. And they're like, who can do this? And he's like, if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'm killing all the wise men in all of Babylon. And so they all panic. And they're like, who can do this but the gods? Plural. And so Daniel, as one of this company, finds out uh, what has been edicted, uh, what has been decreed, and, and he asks his people to pray. And they pray, and boom, he gets the dream and the interpretation. And when he gets the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that he didn't tell anyone, and he gets the interpretation of the dream, he then prays this prayer. And this is just the beginning of the prayer. But look what it says. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Now, kings in this time were more than presidents. Right? When, when Pharaoh said, throw all the male children into the Nile, there were no consequences. There were no protests in the streets. No one was trying to impeach him. What the king said went. That's the difference between a king and a president. You know, we have three houses of government that check each other. Well, in this context, the king is all three branches. And what he says goes. Now, what this is saying is that God is the one who rules the kings. And so, on a human level, the kings at this time were the most sovereign and the most powerful on the planet. And God's saying, I rule the kings. I set them up and I tear them down. 
I am sovereign over the sovereigns. I rule the rulers, is what he's saying. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And so what we're wrestling with here is is God has every right, if he wants to, to harden Pharaoh's heart, doesn't he? I remove kings and I set up kings. I give wisdom if someone is wise. I give knowledge if they have understanding. And yet, we still struggle with that, okay? And, and I understand why. Because our logic says, how can someone be responsible if God is somehow in the mix directing the heart and will? And Romans 9 picks that up, which we'll get to in time. I don't want to spoil later chapters. But as I said a few weeks ago, I, I am kind of a, a study Bible junkie. And I really like the Reformation Study Bible. How many of you have that one? One, two. Man, that's another small S sin. I'm sorry. You all who have not read Mere Christianity, that's a small S sin. And now you don't have the Reformation Study Bible. God won't condemn you for it, but I will. Okay? You need to get that. That should be on your shelf, perhaps right next to all of your daily Bible reading, okay? Because R.C. Sproul's the editor, and then when you look through the general editors, it's all the biblical theology guys, all the Westminster guys, all the redemptive historical guys, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Just get the Bible, okay? Don't worry about it. Here's the, here's the note. Ready? This is really good. That's why I want to read it to you. When, when God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, here's the note. Listen close. Since in this context, heart denotes will, God start, states that he will strengthen Pharaoh's resolve to not release the Israelites. Now, as the chapters progress, we'll see that harden has three different forms, three different ways that it could be translated, okay? And, and here it means strengthen. So, in other words, God's going to wear Pharaoh out with these plagues, but at the same time, he's going to strengthen his resolve to resist. That's remarkable. I'm going to strengthen his heart, harden, so that he will not let my people go. Strange as it may seem, God will give Pharaoh the courage to do what Pharaoh has chosen to do from the outset. God does not force Pharaoh to act contrary to his own will. God will display his power over the stubborn hostility of the king so that his people might know that he is the Lord, their deliverer. And and we'll, we'll touch on that again. We'll get into that more. I know that that's maybe not satisfying enough, but I promise you we will come back to the hardening of heart because it comes up again and again and again as the as the chapters progress. Paul R. Williamson is also an Exodus scholar, and he writes this. The hardening, in terms of a disposition of Pharaoh's that became his undoing when God stiffened Pharaoh's resolve not to let Israel go. And so, an inflexible, insensitive, an unresponsive king became even more resistant to the Lord's will while at the same time ensuring that God's purpose for Pharaoh would indeed be realized. However we resolve the problem of Pharaoh's heart, two important points must be remembered. One, 
The main concern in this section of the book is to demonstrate that the Lord, not Pharaoh, is ultimately in control, as indicated by the reoccurring phrase, as the Lord said, 713, 815, 19, 912, 35. And two, God's sovereign control of these affairs does not absolve Pharaoh of blame because, like all sinners, he remains fully responsible for his refusal to obey God. Now, now, now I will speak less scholarly for one moment. Okay? Here's what it looks like. We have nothing good in our flesh, according to Romans 7. Paul says, there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. NIV translate, in my sinful nature. And then he says, the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another in Galatians 5, so that you cannot do the things you want. Later in Romans 7, uh, we learn that Paul continues to not do what he wants to do because of this reality of indwelling sin, Romans 7.25. And so, here's what it looks like. If you are not born again, that language comes from John 3.3, 3, and it means that God gives you a new heart, a heart of stone removed, and a heart of flesh given. You have a new disposition. You have new spiritual life within you by the Holy Spirit. You have the very Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in you. And you also have the flesh as a Christian. Okay? And so Galatians 5 says that these two realities are at war within you. The flesh or the indwelling sin and that new life of the Holy Spirit or being born again. And so how many of you understand what it's like to feel the pull of temptation to whatever you're most attracted to? Anger, lust, greed, whatever it is, right? You, you know that draw to be quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry, don't you? You know that. And, and, it, and it pulls you in like a riptide and sometimes the pull of temptation is so hard, you're like, I'm diving in, baby. And you just go, right? And then you feel guilty, praise God for his spirit's conviction, and you repent, and you get back up off the floor, you dust yourself off, and you move towards God, and you live the Christian life another day, right? Now imagine this, no Holy Spirit, no new spirit, no spiritual life, and a hard heart of stone. That's Pharaoh. And so if God's going to move on an unrepentant, hard-hearted, unregenerate, non-born-again person with mercy to move them in a good direction, he can do that. But if God pulls back all positive activity and leaves you to your sin and hardness of heart, you will oppose him every single time without fail. And so, we do know God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but the question is, how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? And I would argue it's by his pulling back his mercy and grace and positive influence and giving Pharaoh exactly what he wanted, which was to oppose God and to keep the enslaved Israelites for his purposes, to continue to put himself up as a deity himself. And so, again, we will talk more about this as 
the chapters progress, but we had to touch on it because the text touches on it. Now, this next portion is, I admit, one of the strangest portions in the whole book. It's, it's bizarre. And, you know, I've even gotten texts from people who were just reading it and was like, what is this and what does it mean and why is it here in this, you know. And so, let's read it and then I'll, I'll unpack it. So, get the picture. There's the donkey. There's Zipporah. There's the two kids, Eleazar and, and Gershom. And Moses is walking beside the donkey. And God shows up and he's going to kill somebody. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, so let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Bizarre indeed. <laughs> but Moses, who, who wrote Exodus, chose to put this in here and at this point for a reason. And here's what we miss because we looked at some other texts in between. Don't forget about what was just last read, okay? Look at it. The last verse. And I say to you, let my son, son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so you got three sons here now in the context. You got Israel as a son. You got Pharaoh's firstborn son. And now the very next verse is about who? One of Moses' sons. So it's not way off. And it's important for this reason, okay? We have to remember that, as Pete said early on, first sermon, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are essentially one book, book in five parts, okay? And so you can't have Exodus without Genesis in front of it. And if you've read Genesis, then you are now understanding what's going on in Exodus chapter 4. Because Genesis chapter 17, God, this very God who is threatening Pharaoh's firstborn son, made a covenant with the first Jewish person. His name was what? Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was not Jewish. He was Urish. <laughs> I'm tempted to make a lot of jokes. I won't. He was Urish in his ethnicity, okay? And that's modern-day Iraq, by the way. So you can just imagine the geography there. And so God shows up to Abraham, and he says, I'm, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have so many descendants that it will be like the stars of the sky. Count them if you can, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Later, God decides to establish a covenant with Abraham. Okay, a covenant is a promise. And not only is it a promise, it's a binding promise, normally between two parties. Okay, and so let's, let's look at it briefly. Genesis 17, 9 to 14. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. 
you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, okay? So if the Israelites are 400 years later in Egypt and they're about to be liberated from Egyptian captivity, is that included in the throughout their generations? Shake your head, yes. Okay, and so this covenant that's being spoken of here applies 400 years later to the Israelites, but also to Moses and Gershom and Eleazar and their kids, because now they are a part of the people of God, the children of Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Remember, this is a sign of the covenant. This is a sign of the covenant between my wife and I. This is not the covenant, but this is a real picture, a physical sign of the covenant. And if you're married, you should wear your wedding ring or at least get it tattooed on you, okay? Or wear one of those rubber ones if you're afraid of the buzzsaw gripping your hand up. I get it, okay? But you should wear the sign of the covenant. And so here, the sign of the covenant, it's not the covenant, it's the sign of the covenant is circumcision. It's a sign that you are a part of the people of God. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the new covenant sign that you're a part of the people of God? At least six of you should know this. Starts with a B. Baptism. Okay, Circumcision is no longer the sign of the people of God. It's baptism, where Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you are baptized, you're saying, I am a part of the people of God. Baptism is not you in the covenant, but it's a sign, a symbol that you are in the covenant. And so, by the way, if you're a Christian and you're not baptized, that's not good. That's like you not having the wedding ring and you're married. So we should talk about baptism, all right? We will create one just for you, a whole service dedicated to your sign of the new covenant, all right? So let's keep going. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old, so now he's prescribing when and how it's to take place. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins, look at this, really important to our text, shall be cut off from his people. This is the answer. He has broken my covenant. And and some of us are like, man, that's a little harsh, God. Are you going to kill somebody because they didn't do the sign? Yes. God is serious about his covenants. Now, when you break the covenant of marriage, praise God he doesn't instantly kill you, right? 
Because many of us have broken it, maybe not physically, but certainly in the heart. Because Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman, and you can flip that, if you're a woman and you've lusted after a man, what have you done? You've committed adultery in your heart. You broke the covenant. And who can stand under that? No one. And amazingly, God has mercy on us. And God has mercy on Moses' son. Now, there's debate here. Just so you know, if you've read the commentaries, if you've studied this at all, you'll know that scholars are divided. Is God trying to kill Moses or Moses' son? I'm convinced that it's Moses' son who is about to be killed here. Okay? And here's why. Egypt is, or I'm sorry, Israel is my firstborn son. I'm about to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son if he doesn't let my son go. And now it seems to flow right with the context that God is going to kill Eleazar or Gershom. Now remember what we just read. If the male is not circumcised, what will happen to him? He will be cut off from the people. Okay? And interestingly, Moses, there's no discussion about Moses and circumcision. Okay? I know this is kind of weird, but it's in the text. Right? Like, we could have skipped this part and be like, oh, where'd, where'd verses 24 to 26 go? I don't worry about it. But we want you to understand the whole Bible in the context. All right? I know this is weird. Relax. It's fine. You'll be all right. And so Moses must have been circumcised. I know that's weird. Don't imagine it. Just listen to me. He must have been, okay? Because God tells him, you go and I'll be with your mouth and you will do these signs. And why would he commission him and empower him and say, go? And then all of a sudden now he's he's gonna kill Moses. Doesn't make sense. And so it makes more sense with the flow of the context and because this issue would have already been confronted if it was Moses, uh, he, he is, he is going to take the boy's life, cut off from the people because the flesh of his foreskin has not been cut off. He's not in the covenant. Okay? And so how did this happen? We have no idea. Did God show up with a flaming sword? Did the voice come from heaven? Like, we don't know. It just says that Zipporah knew what to do. She knew what to do. Zipporah took a flint, like a flint knife, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, to me, I read uh, verse 25 as as negative. Some scholars look at it positively, and they say, uh, you know, this, this is her just announcing blood covenant, I think she's upset at Moses here, and it seems like an emotionally traumatic event. And so it seems to me that she, she takes the foreskin, throws it at Moses, and she's like, you're a bridegroom of blood to me, you know? And, and I could just see her face angry, you know? And she just saved her son's life. And so it, it, it's a traumatic event here. So let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And so most likely she was upset. She was blaming Moses. And some scholars even think at this point, this is when Moses sends them back to Jethro. He like turns the donkey around. 
He's like, all right, no more death to my family. Uh, this is obviously harmful. And Jethro shows back up with them in chapter 18 after the plagues and after the Red Sea. And so at some point, they went back. But some scholars think at this point, because of the circumcision and because it would have been, I mean, that's a kind of a serious surgery. We don't know how old the boys were. Uh, they would have needed time to recover. Perhaps he sent them back. Uh, we don't know for sure. Okay, and so remember, it, it's the covenant God made a covenant with the people of Abraham, and then the people of Isaac, and then the people of Jacob, name changed to Israel, the people of Israel, which is why they're called Israelites. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this covenant and the sign of it, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will give you this land. It was a land covenant and a promise to be their God, and a promise of descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All right, let's finish. The last section of verses here is 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. All right, now, Aaron all of a sudden shows up in the narrative. Now, who was Aaron? That's right, it was Moses' brother. And earlier at the burning bush incident, God says through the bush to Moses, as Moses is saying, look, I, I have a stutter or I have a speech impediment or I can't talk well. You, you know this God. He's like, hey, your brother Aaron, he can speak well. He does TED Talks all the time. I've heard him. He's good. And so here's what's going to happen, Moses. He's going to speak for you and you're going to act like God. He's going to be your prophet, and you're going to be in the place of God. He's going to speak for you. I'll give you what to say. You give Aaron what to say, and that's how we're going to do this. So now Aaron is making his way into the wilderness. That's because God earlier at that time said, look, your brother Aaron is coming to meet you. I doubt that he was like, oh, yeah, there he is. I see him in the distance. Probably at this same time about, God met with Aaron and said to Aaron, go and meet with your brother Moses. He has a message for you, and I have a mission for you. Because all of a sudden, Aaron begins to go out into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him, okay? A favorable greeting, uh, kind to, to each other. They are, they are family, they are brothers. And Moses told Aaron all the words the Lord, words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. So, so think about it. God did not tell Aaron everything that was going on. He's going to begin to practice. God told Moses, and now Moses is going to relate to Aaron. It's the same thing that's going to happen with Pharaoh and in Egypt. God's going to tell Moses something, and then he's going to relay it to Aaron, and Aaron is going to speak it. Okay? And so now, Aaron is being filled in on the whole thing, the burning bush. I was arguing with God. He almost killed my son. You know, he's, he's recounting the whole thing. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Okay, so now get the picture. About a million people, if you count the, the women and the children, 600,000 plus men, okay? There were elders among the people. Elders acted like judges. They acted 
like fathers of families, heads of families. They would often uh, be looked to, to to resolve issues like, like judges, okay? And, and there is a, a moving forward of elders in, in the progression of the Israelite people and even into the New Testament where you have pastoral elders, okay? And so the elders are going to represent the people as a whole, and Moses and Aaron are going to speak to this group of elders who are then going to go back and tell all the people this news. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke, notice who's speaking, not Moses. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses. You see the transfer? That the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. What signs? Throwing the staff down and becoming a snake. Moses puts his hand in the cloak. He pulls it out. It's leprous. He puts it back in, pulls it out. It's healed. He turns the, the river water of the Nile into blood. He does the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And the people believed. Okay, so notice, the signs accomplished what God said they would accomplish. They will believe you. Do these signs, and they will believe that I met with you, and I called you to do this, Moses. So here we see uh, the fulfillment of what God told Moses. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel... And that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Now remember, they don't know God in his fullness because God had only revealed a small amount of who he is to them at this point. They had the last words of Joseph who prophesied, God will visit you and you are to take my bones up with you when you exit this country. Now, it's been 400 years, and here now they're recounting the words of Joseph. The Lord had visited his people. Now is the deliverance. Now is the time. And so they begin to worship, which is the exact thing that God is calling them out into the wilderness to do, to be a worshiping community. Now, let's finish with this. The old covenant people of God had the sign of circumcision. And the circumcision involved blood. You remember with Zipporah, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. No doubt there was a lot of blood involved in that surgery. I mean, that's really what it was. It was surgery. And so there's blood everywhere. She throws the, the blood at his feet or on him, at, at his leg. Uh, and, and, and you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Friends, did you know that there's always blood in the covenant? I mean, all the way through. The covenant at Sinai, there's blood being sprinkled on them. For breaking the covenant, blood is offered through animal sacrifice. And interestingly, in the new covenant, we don't need bloody sacrifices or bloody covenants anymore, do we? Do you know why? Let's go back to the text we read at the very beginning when we opened up this worship gathering. And the Lord your God, so remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, still in the five books. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
So this is in the old covenant where circumcision is still a real thing. It's a sign of the covenant, but a prophecy is being given that this physical circumcision is only pointing to a different kind of circumcision into the future. God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Look what will result so that, okay, that's purpose. This will follow. I do this, and this will be the result. I slap you in the face, you get angry. (laughs) I will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Friends, think about what that says. The circumcision of the heart points forward to what I had mentioned earlier in the message. You need to be born again. You need to have that stony heart that's resistant to God, resistant to His will, resistant to a relationship with Him, and He needs to take out, remove that heart, or circumcise it, and give you a living, beating, pliable, soft, favorable heart towards Him. And you know what that will result in? You loving God. Which means if you don't have this circumcision of the heart, you can't love God. Because look at the result. So that you will love me. The truth is, friends, we have no love in our hearts for God until he puts it there. Therefore, it is okay for you to pray God, I do not have affections in my heart for you at this time. Will you fill my heart with love? And you know what you're praying if you pray that? You're actually praying for the third person of God to show up in your life. Because you know what the first fruit of the third person of God in your life is? The fruit of the Spirit is love, then joy, then peace, then patience, kindness, goodness, etc. And so this Being born again and the Holy Spirit coming to reside in your body causes you to love God and to be able to love others. Jeremiah 31 also speaks of this same reality with different words. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Pointing to the new covenant. We're in this time now. I will put my law within them. Internal law, not external I will write it on their hearts. Same thing as a circumcised heart. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. I love that. So so the new covenant is different in this reality. Everyone in this new covenant knows God. John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, as he's praying to his Father, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. And so here, everyone in this covenant will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And so here in this new covenant, there's There's a cleansing element, and there's a forgiving element, and there's a part of God that says, I'm not going to remember your sins because I choose to not hold them against you anymore. And if you remember the Last Supper, friends, you remember Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his friends, with his disciples, 
something they'd done over and over again for the previous three years, and he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant, what? In my blood. In other words, this covenant will also be bloody, but it won't be your blood, and it won't be the blood of an animal. My blood. Friends, the blood of God will be the blood of the new covenant. And so Jesus, stretched out on a cross, bleeds the blood of the new covenant that washes away all our sin. Isn't that good news? And so we, in this new covenant, we don't have to offer blood anymore because the blood of God was sufficient. No more blood is needed. His was the most powerful blood that all the previous blood sacrifices and blood of the covenants pointed to. And so now what we need is God to do a work in us by His Spirit, bringing us into this new promise that I will be your God, you will be my people, I will write my law on your heart. What that means is this, you'll have a desire internally to obey God and to follow Him. You won't have to have the external threat, do this or die. Do this and live. No, you'll have a new heart that desires to follow after God, that desires to walk in His way, that doesn't want to offend Him. And when you do, you feel terrible about offending Him. And you cry out, oh God, how could I have done it again? Forgive me. And you know what happens? He forgives our iniquity and He remembers our sin no more. He looks to the cross. He sees the blood. It's applied to you. And He says, that sin is also covered. Oh, you did it again? That sin is also covered. And if you will pray and continue in the Christian faith, He will give you power to overcome the sins that right now so easily entangle you. He will. And so we're going to remember and proclaim the blood of the new covenant right now. We do this every week at Eternal City through Communion. It's, it's a reenactment of the Last Supper where we take the juice and we take the cracker and we remember what Jesus said. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so let us together now celebrate that we are in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Now, friends, if you are foreign to what I'm talking about tonight. If what I'm saying to you is, is confusing and you're like, I don't know about this blood of the covenant and blood of Jesus. And friends, I would encourage you, don't take this symbol of that reality. We would want you to get right with God first before you would take the symbol. The symbol shows that you're already right with God. It doesn't make us right with God. And so maybe tonight you should get right with God. Ask Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and he will forgive you. He says right here, I, I will remember their sins no more. And it's only by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you will call out to him for mercy and grace and forgiveness and acceptance, he will forgive you. So maybe, maybe tonight, for the first time, you want to take the symbol because you're grasping onto the reality. Who is Christ himself? 
the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So we're going to sing a gospel song together, and I would encourage you, hold your communion elements until we're done singing, and then we will all proclaim the Lord's death together until he comes. And so hold your communion elements until we're done singing. I'll come back out, and I'll lead us all in taking communion together. Everyone stand, please. Before we take the sacrament of communion, we're going to sing a song called I Surrender All. It's a classic hymn. If you know it, sing with. If you don't, uh, just use these words as a prayer. And uh, we'll do that. logic there in that song is this. Jesus gave it all up for us, even to death, death on a cross. And so, our reasonable act of worship is to, in response, surrender all to Him. 
Surrender your whole self. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. And I want to encourage you, you can't do that on your own. You need God to move through you and enable you and help you. And so ask him, God, help me. Help me to surrender whatever it is to you. Whatever's troubling you, whatever's bothering you, the sin that so easily clings to you, the situation, the circumstance. Help me to surrender it to you. And we know that God will answer our prayers because we are in the new covenant. We are his children by grace, through faith, in the blood of Christ. And this is the symbol that we hold. The cracker represents Jesus' body broken on the cross, and this juice represents his blood poured out. And so we remind ourselves and we remind each other every week of this blood of the covenant, and we take it into our own body saying, this is for me. Jesus did this for me. And it represents us in the new covenant, in Christ, because Christ is the new covenant, essentially. So let us remember Jesus and let us proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back again to get us. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus. Father, we thank you that we are safe and hidden in Christ. That God, you have promised us that we are yours and you are ours. And that God, all of our sins are forgiven and you choose to remember our sins no more. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are wrestling. God, give them victory. Give them power, enable them. As you enabled Moses to go and confront Pharaoh, enable my brothers and sisters to confront whatever they're facing. But would it be you and not them, I pray. Help them to lean on you, to rest in you, to trust in you, and would you come through with power and be the help they need. We thank you for Jesus in our place. We thank you that we're in Christ and we're in this new covenant. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week.